I think we'll try and start. So if you could just grab your seats up there quickly, that would be excellent. There's still one or two seats. Thank you. Well, good evening to you all, and uh, welcome to a special Ralph Miliband event entitled, Is Global Democracy Possible? And of course, this is a very opposite moment to re-examine this question, an old question, but very much an alive question, in the context, among other things, of the global financial crisis, so-called, with its extraordinary ramifications across the world. The thing about the global financial crisis is, however, that it's essentially an Anglo-American economic and financial crisis with the risks and costs partly externalized across the world, which gives rise to very profound questions about democracy, who's accountable to whom, what regulations for whom, to please what constituencies, and to what extent the interests of others that seem far away, but actually in socio-economic terms are quite close, are taken into account. So this debate is one way of formulating the question, can the global order be democratized? If so, how and in what ways? To explore this theme, I have the pleasure of welcoming three highly productive, creative individuals will each speak on these questions in the first 50 minutes or so before we open it up to you for discussion. First of all, my longtime friend and colleague, Daniele Archibugi, he's the research director at the Italian National Research Council in Rome and professor of innovation, governance, and public policy in London at Birkbeck College. He works on economics and the policy of technical change as well as the political theory of international relations. His most recent book, The Trigger for this event, published just by Princeton University Press, is called The Global Commonwealth of Citizens Towards Cosmopolitan Democracy. Next to speak will be George Monbiot, who probably needs little introduction to many of you here. He's the author of several very best-selling books, including Heat, How to Stop the Planet Burning, The Age of Consent, A Manifesto for a New World Order, and Captive State, the Corporate Takeover of Britain, as well as, I should say, several wonderfully written investigative travel books, including Poisoned Arrows, Amazon Watershed, and No Man's Land. He's a regular contributor to The Guardian. He's held numerous visiting appointments, and of course, he's widely known as a leading commentator in public life. Next to him, and third but not last, is another dear friend and colleague, Professor Mix Cock, who has a chair, of course, in international relations here at the LSE, and is director of numerous centers here, building all the time in number. Uh, he's the director of the Cold War Studies uh, Center and director of Ideas, uh, which is a center for the study of diplomacy and strategy. He's written many things, and in 2009, he will publish two volumes of his own writings, The Rise and Fall of the American Empire and the United States and World Order from the Cold War to the War on Terror. In 2010, he will publish two four-volume editions of key writings on the Cold War and U.S. foreign policy. Daniele Archibuti, as I said, will speak first on the themes for 20 minutes, followed by George Monbiot and Mick Cox. What you're going to get is both a stimulating and very entertaining discussion. I know the sense of humor of at least two of the speakers, and I must say it would keep me going for hours and hours and hours. All we need is a bottle of wine between us all, and it would go on for many hours, and friendly staff who would be willing to stay very late. So regardless, this is the beginning of an engaging, I think, an entertaining evening, and it just remains for me to welcome our speakers. Welcome to the LSE.
Well, it's a pleasure and an honor to be back uh, here at the LSE and especially to discuss the issue about global democracy. And in many aspects, I think that we are, I'm coming back to square one. Because many years ago, in a historical period uh, with many hopes, uh, a group of us started to discuss the possibility of a cosmopolitan democracy. And therefore, the fact that David and a few others, <coughs> we are a bit older now. <laughs> we are a bit older, but we are still there. And uh, on substantial issues, uh, we haven't changed our views. Uh, no. It shows that, that uh, the agenda has not progressed that much, unfortunately, on the one end. And on the hand, that uh, at least we continue to think that it's important uh, to take uh, this agenda further. The historical conditions which in the early 90s lead us to develop cosmopolitan democracy was the hope that a new president in the United States, the fall of the Berlin Wall, democratization in Eastern Europe, in South America, and in other countries could also have some positive effects on the international system. And indeed, this has not happened over the last years, and we can easily associate it to the presidency of George W. Bush, a president with us gone now, and I, none, of, none of us is going to regret that. But uh, on the other hand, uh, it's somehow wrong to think uh, that one man only can somehow change the course of history, or that we can put uh, our hopes for a substantial change in world politics uh, in the hand of one man only. We know that now there, are, there, are, there is a new president in the United States. And uh, I think uh, all over the world, uh, there is a desire that uh, this new president will make a change. And uh, somehow I think that many of us uh, assume implicitly that uh, Barack Obama will act as we will act. And this, of course, uh, is not true. It should not, it's not substantiated yet. We can hope it, and it's important to, to, to get our hopes and to get a vision. But I would like to argue that uh, the world in the future will also depend very much on what will happen, not just inside the White House, uh, but also what will happen outside the White House. And therefore, this is very much something that we need, we need uh, to reflect. And uh, as uh, members of academia, we need to provide uh, intellectual arguments to see if uh, these changes can be introduced. And one of these changes is precisely, to put in Matthias' words, uh, is uh, global democracy possible? What can uh, what can we understand as global democracy? And uh, let me say that one of the most important factors of our era is that democracy has been universally acclaimed as political system. I've got here some data produced by our colleagues in the Department of Political Sciences, and you will see that since uh, the end of the Second World War, uh, the number of democratic countries have very much uh, increased. I mean, there have been an increasing number of states, but also democratic countries. And therefore, at least uh, something uh, useful has happened. Uh, and this story is that uh, democracy is becoming more and more the accepted and legitimate form of uh, governance within countries, and with good reasons. There are economic <coughs> reasons for that. Democracies can provide and can give to the citizens a democratic dividend a democratic dividend which will mean that they are better off in economic terms, in terms of respect of human rights. I hear our, our colleague, now that, now that you arrived, maybe, I, and so on. 
and also because there is an intrinsic value of democracy, the possibility of citizens to be part and to take part in the place where they live. We also know that a substantial part of the world is not yet democratic, and indeed, here we start to have some disagreements on the methods <coughs> which are accepted in order to expand democracy in other countries. Yesterday, I gave a presentation to the parliament on the invitation of the Harry Jackson Society, a society of, of uh, people with very different views. Most, some of them are neocons. And indeed, they would argue that the way in which <coughs> democracy can be diffused is also through muscular methods, the muscular methods which have been used by the White House over the last eight years, and even in other periods. But indeed, there is no evidence that these methods do any good to the diffusion of democracy. And actually, if you look the, after the end of the Second World War, the only two countries which have become democratic just because of military invasions are Panama and Grenada, two tiny states very close to the United States. While we have experienced major failures in countries such as South Korea, that for many years after the war didn't have a form of democratic governance, in Vietnam, and today the same story uh, is repeating itself in Afghanistan and, uh, and Iraq. So maybe something else should be attempted. And this something else are other methods which are persuasion, denunciation when it's needed, but the idea that the imposition of democracy is not doing any cause of democracy. On the contrary, I would argue that the, uh, the military way uh, and the military engagement of democratic countries in Vietnam first and in Iraq now has produced precisely the opposite effect. And many countries in the developing world and many national liberation movements in the 70s and the 80s moved on the Soviet front precisely because they saw how brutal could democracies be outside their own borders. And something similar has happened after the invasion in Iraq. If you look at this graph, you see that after 2003, for the first time since 1946, the number of democratic countries has somehow decreased or at least there is no evidence that in very favorable historical conditions, the number of democratic countries is continuing to increase. But let me say that the core of the argument that we have, we have developed is that it's wrong to think that the story is only internal democratization, as many people would argue. Uh, we know too well, I'm not going to repeat it in front of uh, David's students, uh, that uh, on the one hand, uh, everything uh, has become uh, global, but uh, our political systems uh, and democracy, which are still run at the national level only. I'm not going to repeat uh, how globalization is going to challenge uh, the way in which democracy is managed within uh, internal countries, and many important decisions which will affect uh, the lives uh, of uh, democratic countries such as the United Kingdom and the United States, uh, Italy and so on, are in fact affected by events which occur in other parts of the world. The real point uh, is that the democratic West has so far, so far failed to promote democracy also in international affairs. And that's something on which we need to reflect. And indeed, uh, when it has done it, uh, mostly thinking that other countries should endorse democracy inside, uh, it has fostered a program of democratization. And that's important. But why 
to internal democratization, we didn't have an important agenda also for global democracy. And that, I think, uh, that we should argue against uh, the traditional view of, uh, of democratization, which argues that the more the number of democratic countries will increase in the world, uh, the more stable and democratic will be also the international system. So the international system is conceived as uh, an addition of individual components, the national components. And if the individual components are democratic, also the international system will be democratic. And therefore, this is not a problem of global democracy, but just an internal problem. If all <coughs> the countries will endorse the systems of governance which are experienced in democratic countries, maybe even the House of Lords, which might be a way organizing polity in Africa and Asia and so on, then we won't have any problem of global democracy. And the implicit assumption, if there is something wrong, there is something wrong, sits with the non-democratic countries. I mean, in, in international relations, uh, maybe Mick will speak about that. Uh, we, uh, the, the most widely debated hypothesis, the hypothesis about, the, about the demo the, that democracies do not fight each other. And therefore, that since democracies do not fight each other, at least one of the international problems, the problem of war, uh, will disappear the day in which uh, all countries of the world will be democratic. What does it mean to be democratic is, of course, uh, left uh, not addressed. And that uh, is part uh, of the problem. I'm here to argue for an alternative view. An alternative view, which uh, I, I continue to argue with this view, is the view about cosmopolitan democracy, which uh, assumes uh, that the international system will change uh, not just uh, as uh, a consequence of internal changes within countries. This, of course, will help. The more country will be democratic and the more the democracy inside will be stable, the better off will also be the international system. But this is not uh, the only assumption. We also need to create uh, conditions for a global democratization. And uh, indeed, uh, this view is against uh, the self-congratulatory uh, vision of democracy according to which democracy can on only do good things uh, in international affairs. And we really see how language has been changed over the years. And all the acts which democracy are committed are considered to be good acts just because uh, are the acts of democracy. And therefore, is, uh, is, there is not any longer the possibility to, to enter into the actions. I mean, we have seen uh, this change in language about torture, which has become a coercive uh, interrogation, about quite a lot of things. And possibly, we hope very much that these sort of things will change uh, in the future. The effect of uh, these actions uh, has been to polarize uh, in non-democratic countries uh, the attention and to move them away from democracy. And actually, many countries uh, called, uh, managed to have an effect <coughs> which uh, some people call uh, the rally round the flag <coughs> effect, uh, which rather than making weaker despotic regimes, uh, have made them stronger. And this uh, has created major problems, because uh, while in order to to diffuse democracy, democratic forces need to have uh, somebody which, with whom they can talk, persuade. If these people are not any longer trusting the Western the democratic uh, uh, colleagues uh, simply because they see how brutal can be democratic countries, in that case, uh, there's no way in which democracy can be built uh, in a bottom-up way. So we are still in the problem in which we need to define what is this global democracy which needs to be possible. <coughs> and indeed, uh, in my book, uh, which uh, put together 
Here it is also because uh, it's, uh, it's going to be on sales uh, outside, and therefore I, I've, I've, been, I've been asked uh, to show it very well, even I think at a discounted price. Uh, in, uh, it, it's, uh, it's, um, uh, I try to make uh, and to, to, um, to find what are the core values of democracy that can be applied also at the international level. And uh, based on my, on my mentors, uh, I managed to find out uh, three main principles which can be applied internally at the local level and even at the global level. And I think I would like to reinforce the idea that cosmopolitan democracy is a conceptual framework uh, which doesn't only wish to get uh, a larger form of democracy, but also a reorganization of democracy at all levels uh, of governance, including the local, where we often have problems, as David would have said, of uh, overlapping communities of, of faiths at the national level, at the regional level, and also at the global level. What are these values which are so general, which can put together the Western experience of democracy, non-Western experiences of democracy, direct democracy, representative democracy, and possibly even the new forms of democracy that in many ways uh, we are trying to build. Uh, George Monbiot has just returned from ITRO, and maybe he can also <coughs> discuss a typical problem of democracy, which is a typical problem of democracy within one community. And maybe not only, because as a foreigner, maybe I, I will also have a stake to decide what Israel Airport should become, you know? But anyhow, these three values are non-violence in the way public choices are made. And I've taken this point from Norberto Bobbio. By non-violence is the idea that political factions should somehow create a preemptive agreement among themselves in order to discuss their own uh, issues with, violent, with methods which are not uh, just coercive. It's something that we experience uh, all over the democratic rules, uh, a preemptive pact, uh, and I would say this is not even a condition, it's a precondition. Karl Popper, which spent uh, some of his best years at the London School of Economics, uh, argued once that, that democracy is a political system in which uh, you can change government uh, without the bloodshed. I develop, I mean, other scholars, including my Italian mentor, Norberto Bobbio, have developed this idea, and I've seen how this constitutional <coughs> pact could work. And if we look, uh, this is the first condition. The other two conditions which I've taken from David Beatham are public control over decision and decision makers and political equality among citizens. <coughs> and indeed, uh, if we take into account these three core conditions of democracy, we see that uh, the international organizations uh, already in uh, large part uh, incorporate them. I mean, the main purpose of the United Nations uh, is uh, the prevention of war. But of course it's not enough. And possibly what we need to do is to make the United Nations more functional, for example, creating a, a better uh, functioning uh, judicial system, which so far doesn't really help uh, in uh, avoiding conflicts simply because it cannot express any opinion, or even uh, creating a world parliament. And that's uh, something on which, uh, on which at least David and also George Monbiot have agreed. We do not expect, of course, that we, with this world parliament we'll have the same power of the House of Commons. Of course not. Uh, but a world parliament, even if very limited powers, uh, even the European Parliament has very limited powers, powers will be one way in which citizens will be represented in the political dimension independently from their own uh, governments. And therefore, we'll open up a way of 
comparing, confronting, discussing the views, uh, which so far is not available to them. And therefore, the citizens, uh, including yourself, uh, are represented in international affairs uh, only when you feel that your government is really representing you. If you don't feel that your government is representing you because either you belong to the opposition or because you belong to a minority or because uh, you have uh, many stakes in common with other communities, uh, you do not really participate in international politics. And this often leads uh, to other forms uh, of political expression, and many of these forms uh, are not the desirable expressions. Might be violent forms uh, which somehow can be taken into control. The second uh, aspect, uh, thank you, public, public control uh, over public decisions and decision makers uh, is a key value of democracy which uh, is also what happens in international organizations. What, what distinguishes international organizations from uh, other forms, uh, for example, secret summits, uh, is that at least uh, we know what people say. I mean, it's not just a diplomacy. Often these international organizations are not effective. Often important decisions are taken outside these international organizations. The financial crisis, for example, was dealt and addressed in groups, the G4, G20, G16, G5, G, G2, or whatever, which were not really accountable to anybody. We don't really know what happened there. We know, I mean, we, know, we, we knew that these people met, they took decisions, but we don't have any idea about the, the, the decisions which have been taken. And this is an important difference compared to international organizations. So maybe we should manage to get additional power to international organizations, at least to know what are the decisions they are taking on the life of everybody. The last principle is the principle of political equality among citizens, and, uh, which is a core principle of democracy. And uh, unfortunately, democracies are very much created in order to include some and to exclude others. And uh, when there are exclusions, suddenly everything becomes justified because a given constituency has a mandate from its own voters to do something. And we have experienced it all the time. The United, Nation, the United States got a the government of the United, uh, the United States got a mandate and therefore was allowed <coughs> to intervene in Iraq even if many of the people in the world wouldn't agree with that. But there was no formal constituency to discuss that. And therefore, they <coughs> argued that uh, the, uh, uh, the will of the American people was above the will of the people of the world, also because the people of the world couldn't express themselves. And because uh, the United Nations, with all its own structure, the Security Council, and even the General Assembly, do not necessarily represent the views of the citizens, but just the view of the people. While if we accept the principle of political equality, it would mean that somehow we should allow a process of consultation in which all the stakeholders have a way to express themselves. And this, again, is something which can be done through a world parliament. Will this make any change in global politics? I mean, it's difficult to expect that. But at least there are good, international, good intellectual arguments which suggest that, that global democracy is possible. Of course, uh, it's not a program which can be put in the hands uh, of a few heads of states, uh, only a few governments, and so on. This is something which needs to be created, and often it needs uh, the, the intervention of peoples willing to act in international affairs. Let me, since, uh, since Mary has arrived, let me make the example of the dark period of uh, the Cold War, where in Europe we had to fight uh, 
against uh, two, two forms uh, which we didn't like. The first one was a dictatorial system in Eastern Europe, and the other form was uh, the, um, uh, the way in which uh, the European countries and NATO thought that could react to that uh, just by putting Euro missiles. The alternative approach uh, was Europe from below, an approach uh, which created the connections with peoples uh, across countries, uh, in which we managed to get uh, contacts uh, with individuals in the East which were dissidents, uh, uh, and not necessarily happy there, actually in very bad shape. At the end, uh, I think that all these activities uh, managed to get a regime change in Eastern Europe, uh, much, uh, and they managed to do that much better than the Euro missiles. <coughs> I think that now, Global democracy is going to be possible if we manage to recreate the same conditions also at the global level. At the time, we had a lot of friends in Eastern Europe. We managed to interact with these people in, in Eastern Europe. Today, I don't think that we have much friends in people like, in countries like Iraq and Afghanistan and so on. And therefore, if you don't want just to wait a radical change in world politics from the White House, I think we can start to build these links. Thank you, David. George Monbiot. Thanks very much, David. Thank you, Daniele. Daniele. Um, I would like to take the discussion back a step and ask, is democracy possible? And it's a question perhaps we should be asking ourselves at the moment in this country. We have a government which was initially elected in 1997 on the back of a series of horrendous Tory sleaze scandals. And it came in vowing that we would see an end to that kind of thing. Well, none of those horrendous Tory sleaze scandals even touched the one that the government is, is, is currently embroiled in. And Labour, for all the promises that it made in 97, has really delivered the worst of all worlds to us. It has failed to um, institute the constitutional reforms that it promised, and it's very fitting and quite telling that the latest scandal is taking place in the House of Lords, the, the chamber whose comprehensive reform Labour has, has flunked again and again over the past 12 years. And it's failed also, of course, to deal with our grossly unfair first-past-the-post electoral system. Um, it has uh, failed to resolve huge questions such as the presence of Scottish MPs in, in, in the Westminster Parliament voting on purely English issues, such as the um, complete failure to democratize the English regions, such as um, the failure to introduce any meaningful uh, participation within our representative system. Um, when it has tried such things, there have been a complete farce, such as Gordon Brown's citizens' juries. And at the same time, as maintaining this constitutional lockdown, which prevents any other political forces from really challenging the hegemony of the two main parties, so there's absolutely no <coughs> prospect of being able to elect a government other than a Labour government or a Conservative government unless there's a hung parliament and where somebody else gets a small share of power. At the same time, it has virtually eliminated the substantive differences between itself and the main opposition party. 
So it has left us with nowhere to turn. It has left us with nothing. It has left us with a complete collapse of public faith in the political and in the democratic process. And that collapse, of course, is self-reinforcing. Because if we don't believe that the system can deliver for us, then we won't fight to uh, improve that system and ensure that our demands are heard. And without that public participation, democracy is dead. Any democratic system is only as good as the challenges that the public makes to that system. And we're now in a vicious spiral wherein our, our, our loss of faith encourages politicians to wash their hands of us, which encourages us to wash their hands of them, and so it goes on until we are governed as we are at, the present, uh, at present by a bunch of creepy technocrats who have no concern whatsoever about public responses to the major issues. And every slithering cop-out that this government has ever engaged in, the failure to deal with the House of Lords being one example, the failure to regulate the financial markets, Peter Mandelson, they've all come back to haunt <laughs> this government. And in fact, it's very hard to think of a slithering cop-out which hasn't. So, when we're faced with the question of is global democracy possible, we have to picture what democracy is. And we have to see how democracy at any level, whether it's global or regional or national or, or local, can be revitalized so that we see some restoration of public faith in the process and some idea that it can actually respond to us. And, and, and the breakdown we see in the United Kingdom is mirrored almost everywhere on earth. And one of the reasons for that, which both David and Daniele have, have alluded to, is that power has fled from the solely national domain and many of the major decisions are taken elsewhere. And those major decisions are decisions over which we have no control or engagement whatsoever. Take the, the major institutions of global governance, for example. The United Nations is entirely controlled in terms of real decision-making power by the five permanent members of the UN Security Council. Now, people assume that the Security Council governs only security issues, but through Articles 108 and 109 of the UN Charter, those five permanent members have a veto on all the business of the United Nations. No resolution can be passed unless they all agree that it should be passed. And so, effectively, the votes of everybody else become irrelevant. Now, this is even before you consider that there is no connection at all between the way in which our national representatives vote and the demands and will of the people they supposedly represent. Let me give you an example of this. Hands up all those who can name the British ambassador to the United Nations. Right, I've yeah, rest my yeah, case. Yeah, no. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um, th th there is a complete disconnect, a total disjunction between ourselves and what we might wish for and what is done in our name at the international level. And, um, and it, it, what we see here is a classic case of, of photocopy democracy, that we elect a government 
for a handful of national and fairly parochial issues, and it's generally the economy, it's tax, it's crime, it's one or two other issues like that. Very seldom an international issue unless we're engaged in a war which actually threatens our national integrity. And on that basis, they first of all decide, right, well, we've been elected so we can do what the heck we want across a huge range of issues, regardless of whether those featured at all in the election campaign, and even these days, regardless of whether they're even in the manifesto. And even if they were in the manifesto, well, is it really relevant? Because we didn't vote on each of those policies. So they have no idea of knowing how, uh, to what extent uh, we were influenced by them. And then they say, having uh, given themselves, granted themselves a mandate to total national governance without any further reference to the people for the next five years, they then say, right, we are going to appoint someone to take this mandate overseas and tell the world what to do, because as a member of the perma uh, permanent member of the Security Council, the United Kingdom um, <coughs> is able to boss everybody else about, uh, well, as long as it does what the big boss says. Uh, which, uh, and, and, the, uh, and, and so it's taken a mandate it does not possess, and it's taken it into a sphere where it has no legitimate engagement at all because nothing has conferred legitimacy upon it at that level except a bizarre and dated historical agreement which had more to do with the outcome of the Second World War than anything which relates to, to the modern world. Then if you take um, the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund, you find that in order to pass any substantial resolution uh, within either body, according to their articles of agreement, you require an 85% majority. By pure coincidence, the United States has a 17% share of the votes in the IMF and an 18% share of the votes in the World Bank. So, by just this remarkable chance, no decision can be make, made by the IMF or the World Bank unless the United States agrees to it. And the United States can scupper any attempt by all the rest of the members to make a decision within those organizations. Now, what this means, and this happens regardless of who the president happens to be, what this means is that the United States Treasury, which has the whip hand within those organizations and which responds even today to what Wall Street wants more than to anybody else, can then dictate to the poorest people on earth what, what the shape of their economies will be and how they will live. And, and so you have the richest people on earth effectively creating the agenda by which the poorest must live. And there's a, a fascinating, um, a, 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 a fascinating a battle within the IMF and the World Bank, which is always resolved in favor of the rich and powerful, which goes as follows. The, the smaller your stake in the outcome of the decisions which those institutions make, the greater your voice. The IMF and the World Bank have no say over the economy of the United States, and the United States has a total say over the World Bank of the IMF. The World Bank and the IMF have a complete say over the economy of Malawi, and Malawi has no voice whatsoever. It is the opposite of democracy. And were this taking place at a national level, you and I would immediately recognize it as an oligarchy, or perhaps even as an autocracy. And yet we tolerate these extraordinary systems because we are not confronted on a daily basis with the complete absence of democracy, with the dictatorship that those systems represent. 
the people of Malawi are confronted with it. And as a result, they're far more aware of the monstrosities done in our name by these institutions. But they can do absolutely nothing about them. They have no means whatsoever of deposing that tyranny and replacing it with democracy. And so the onus falls on us as citizens of the most powerful nations, the citizens of the nations which do have a say within those institutions, or at least as residents within those nations or students within those nations, to agitate for their reform and indeed, I believe, for their overthrow. Like Daniele, I, I would like to see a world parliament whose, power, whose purpose is to modify the powers of the unelected institutions. But I would also like to see a complete shift within those unelected institutions. In fact, I would like to see the World Bank and the IMF demobilized and replaced by an international clearing union of the kind that John Maynard Keynes, um, who had um, connections and many fans here, um, uh, proposed in 1943 and which was rejected at the um, Bretton Woods Summit in 1944 as a result of a great deal of arm twisting by our friends the Big Boss. And he, um, um, and he proposed a system which put an equal um, uh, burden upon the, uh, the world's creditors to discharge trade deficits as it put upon the world's debtors or the people in, in trade deficit. The people in trade credit had an equal, e equal role in doing so um, through some very clever financial engineering. And um, he predicted, in fact, that if um, uh, this system were not adopted, the world would um, lurch from one financial <coughs> crisis to another and fall further, and uh, the indebted countries would fall further and further into debt. Well, as you can see, Keynes was completely wrong. The, um, we, 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 we need within the United Nations to see a, a very serious reconsideration, in fact, a resettlement, allowing a great deal of spread, uh, much more of a spread of power amongst the members of the UN, perhaps according to the size of their population, rather than according to which side they were on at the end of the Second World War. And we need at the same time somehow to try to revitalize democracy both nationally and globally. And I have a number of proposals for what an ideal democracy might look like on the global level. I won't go into them now, I don't have time, they're in my book, but they, <laughs> um, but, but what, what, they, what they look like is not the British parliamentary system writ large or the US Congress writ large or even the European Union writ large. They involve a, a measure of genuine participation which is even more necessary at the global level than it is at the local and national level because of course the bigger your political unit becomes de facto the less democratic it is because the, the smaller the chance that your one voice will be able to influence what that unit does. And so it's even more important that there is genuine participation with uh, the possibility of generating petitions, the possibility of recall, all, all the opportunities we need to keep tabs on our representatives between elections rather than just wielding that very, very blunt instrument at elections. But at the same time, it needs to be a broadly representative system. I would like to see whipping 
um, as understood today in parliamentary systems, becoming illegal, that it should become illegal to try to bribe or blackmail one of the people's representatives in order to get them to change their vote. It's illegal to try to bribe or blackmail an ordinary citizen to get them to change their vote. Why should it be legal to allow our, our MPs to be kicked around in that way? Uh, these are just one or two of, of those ideas. But the question I want to leave hanging is, is this one. How do we break the vicious circle? How do we prevent this spiral, which was not predicted by any of the great philosophers of democracy, from continuing, whereby we continue to lose faith in the democratic process. The democratic process, uh, such as it is, continues to pull away from us, and before very long, we end up with a, a complete disjunction between the will of the people and its implementation by our supposed representatives. In fact, they cease to be our representatives. And that is a question that is pertinent at every political level, and it's one I'd like to see us opening up for discussion this evening. David uh, asked me to come on to this platform for several reasons, a uh, few of them intellectual. Um, but he said he wanted me to be the hard-nosed realist for the evening. Uh, I'll try. I'm even wearing a realist suit. Um, I'm not so sure about the tie. Uh, let me begin, therefore, with a realist assessment of where we are uh, now today. And let me start with a blunt and I don't think particularly realist, I think it's a pretty straightforward assessment, um, that the post-Cold War order is dead. And all the assumptions uh, of the 1990s and indeed of the first few years, I suppose, of the 21st century, uh, I think they're also dead. What were those assumptions? Uh, very quickly, assumption one, the world economy would grow with a few blips along the way, uh, a few crises here and there in Southeast Asia in, the, in, in 1997, but overall the world economy was in an upward uh, trajectory. Uh, Gordon Brown's name has been taken in vain this evening, but I do remember dear Gordon saying that he had overcome boom and slump. Um, well, that has gone. Um, although he's always in a slump psychologically as far as I can see. <laughs> Secondly, uh, and I think this was an assumption of the 1990s, that whatever the problems were with globalization, and I sat in this room and many others with David and Martin Wolf debating globalization or chairing debates about globalization, but whatever divided uh, Martin Wolf and uh, David on the question of globalization, I think there was at least an, an underlying assumption that Globalization was inevitable, it was there, it wasn't going to go away. Uh, and I think thirdly, um, without sounding too much like Francis Fukuyama, um, whom I've never been compared to before, um, even if you didn't think the end of history had come to an end in 1989, <laughs> the 1990s did open up at least some kind of political optimism about change. Um, now, of course, much of that optimism may have been misplaced, and of course, if you lived in former Yugoslavia, 
or in downtown Sarajevo, or in Rwanda, you didn't feel uh, too optimistic. But overall, thinking about, about the 1990s, at least from my own perspective, it was a relatively optimistic period in terms of at least believing that the future belonged to the good guys overall, overall. Um, I think what has changed, and has changed very rapidly and unexpectedly uh, over the last year in particular, although Bush has prepared the grounds, uh, is that I think all of these assumptions are really now uh, either to be questioned or, or been proven to be wrong. Uh, the only thing I would also say is that all of us experts who failed to predict the end of the Cold War predict nearly everything else in the 1990s. Many of the experts here at the LSE also didn't predict the crash. Uh, when the Queen came here to open the new academic building, she turned to an unfortunate economist and said, well, why didn't you know it was coming? <laughs> uh, and he didn't have an answer. Well, that's, that's economist for you. But there's no question, that, particularly over the last few months and certainly over the last year, an annus horribilis, if I might quote the Queen back in 1992, just after Windsor Castle had burnt down and uh, Diana and the Prince Charles were divorcing. Um, this is, and 2008 is really the beginning of a long downturn. It seems to me you don't have to be an economist <coughs> to see that and it's not going to last for a few months or a couple of years. We are, I think, in an entirely new cycle. Within that cycle, which I think is now downwards, uh, globalization, it does seem to me, is not just to be criticized. There is no inevitability, it seems to me now, about globalization. And I think what this has induced, at least in the short term, far from being greater political optimism, has been a high, high degree of political pessimism. Uh, largely because nobody has any answers. Old answers which were tried seem to be cast into the dustbin of history in 1989 and nobody knows which way forward. And of course it has produced, I think as George has pointed out, even in before, before 2008, we have seen some pretty deformed forms of democracy. Uh, George mentioned the United Kingdom. I'm too polite, of course, to mention Italy <coughs> in front of Daniela. <laughs> but I have to say that if you think the UK is bad, try, try Italy for more than 20 minutes. And this may be indeed a I think it's, it's not just an Italian question, as they would say. This is clearly something more about the, about the corruptions of democracy, even in so-called democracy. You don't have to go to Kenya or Nigeria or Zimbabwe to see the deformations. And again, this is producing pessimism uh, politically. Now, in this rather pessimistic situation, there are two rays of sunshine. One, of course, is Daniela Archibuji. Every morning I wake up, I say, thank God for Daniel Archibuji. <laughs> One of the last great optimists left in the world, and thank God for you, Daniel. Not that I believe in a God. The second great ray of sunshine, uh, politically slightly more significant than Daniela, is the President of the United States of America, <laughs> Barack Obama, about which I am altogether far less uh, sceptical um, than I think uh, Daniel Geller was in his opening remarks. Um, no doubt, and nobody for one minute, unless you're a complete madman or madwoman, believes that one man is going to change the world. But I do have to say, Daniela, that I felt a lot happier on November the 5th than I felt on November the 4th before the American people went in and voted for him. 
Uh, it's not just that he's the first black president. I'd also say turning the argument, not against you, but using your argument, one might almost argue that he may be, in fact, the first cosmopolitan president to hold that particular office. Not only just in terms of his own background, but certain things he has said. The limits of what he's going to do are going to be enormous. The choices he's going to make on the Middle East may be dubious. And no doubt, looking at the advisors he's got around him, are basically a bunch of kind of re rehashed Clintonites, um, I don't think he's going to do anything too radical. Still, as I said last week, uh, somebody else that David and I have had here many times before, Robert Kagan, uh, a, a neocon who now denies he ever was one. <laughs> I have never been a member of the neoconservative party. Sounds like a member of the Communist Party of the United States of America in 1951, before the, before the House Committee of Un-American Activities. I have never been, you know, you know, you know the story. But the, the point, I think there is still something we must grasp more optimistic from that election, Daniela. Um, its impact around the world, I think, has been truly extraordinary. Um, its consequences in lifting people's spirits, if only temporarily, I think has been enormous. And I'd also say, if not Barack Obama, then who? Um, that brings me really, I suppose, to the three issues I want to raise with Daniela. I, I read the book and I listened to his comments here this evening. And I these are challenges, really. <coughs> and I suppose the first challenge, really, Daniela, to what you say in your book, or as I read your book, and I think implied in what you said here this evening, and this is where my realism and my pro-imperialism no doubt comes in, um, is about the United States. Brings me to my first issue, or at least a question to Daniel and his book. Um, is he not just a bit too critical of the United States' role in terms of democracy? Now, I, I always say this because nobody ever believes me. Um, I'm no apologist for the United States of America, and over the last eight years, David and I and many others in this audience have been some of its fiercest critics, and I share many of those criticisms. But I suppose I do raise this question with you, Danielle, which I'd you know, like a serious answer to, obviously, is can we envisage any form of democracy, even of the deformed, problematic, queer kind, if you like, in the late 20th century, without the United States? Um, it's a difficult question, but it's one I think, not just as realists, we, we have to ask. Um, in its own half-hearted, none-too-convincing way, it has, not always consciously, sometimes accidentally, pushed back the boundaries of authoritarianism, which was far more the norm, the political norm in the mid-20th century, and certainly the beginning of the 20th century. It seems to be too much of a coincidence to talk on the one hand about the rise of the United States as one of the key narratives of the 20th century, seeing then the emergence of however we want to define some forms of democracy and not associate the two things together. And by the way, in 1945, it wasn't just Panama and one or two other countries you mentioned which became democratic because of the role of the United States and others, including the Soviet Union, of course. It was also Germany and Japan. The end of the Cold War, as you point out in your book, brought an end to a series of authoritarian governments in East Central Europe, thank goodness, but in part without becoming, again, saying it's all down to the United States, and I don't believe that for one minute. It, it's a key moment, and in the 1990s. I won't go on to Bush and Iraq. I dare not say that in front of this audience. I don't think I'd ever be invited back here ever again. So the democracy was achieved, however, imperfect. And so that's the first question I'd really like to pose to you. 
you know, you're very critical of the United States, and rightly so. Um, in Gaza, of course, the United States promoted democracy and then refused to recognize its results. With all the disastrous consequences, uh, the people of that region and of that particular area are now living with. So that's the first question, really, Daniel, to kind of come to terms with it. Come to terms with the role of a particular state in the 20th century and what we say about it. It is easier to get away, it seems to me, sometimes with kind of easy assumptions about the role of the United States. And I just want to kind of raise that. The second question I want to raise, and here I'm almost going to sound like a neo-fascist, uh, but there you go, I'm wearing my realist suit so I can say what I like. Um, Daniel makes in his book two very strong statements, a number of very strong statements. Daniel never sits on the fence, which is one of the reasons I love him dearly. But he says um, about democracy, um, that democracy always in every place is more likely, or as Daniela suggests, better able to satisfy the needs of the world's population than any other form of government. Page 86. Uh, just for the footnote freaks. Um, and then again on page 87, you asserted even more strongly, I deem that democracy can bring long-term benefits to all the inhabitants of the earth. Yeah, well, okay. I'm, I am a Democrat, I have to say that again. Um, yeah, I, I think there's a certain degree of naivete in that argument, to be perfectly blunt. David said, go for it, so I'm gonna go for it. So uh, this is not being recorded. It's under Chatham House rules, of course. Nobody will ever say what I've said here this evening. Um, well, let me be blunt. I mean, China and Russia have governments that are not especially democratic, but until now have been seen by Chinese people and Russian people as being, broadly speaking, legitimate. Um, and it would seem, until now at least, and we'll have to see the impact of the world economic crisis on both, relatively popular. We may not like them, uh, we may not like the fact that the Chinese Communist Party runs China or the Putin runs Russia, but they have got some level of legitimacy and according to Chinese people and many Russians, at least until now, have provided some level of benefits to the peoples of those two countries. Um, Iran is quasi-democratic. I wouldn't want to call it fully democratic, but it wants nukes. India is very democratic, but there's hundreds of millions who live in poverty. Moreover, I might push you even further, Danielle, if we had true and fair elections in Saudi Arabia tomorrow, would we get a government that benefited people over and above what they have at the moment? I'm not sure. I, I simply think that is a difficult question. <coughs> and I'm not sure, therefore, that your statement about democracy simply holds completely. Serbia, after all, in the 1990s, had an elected government, and who they elected into power was Milosevic. Uh, Israel is a democracy. Um, I'm told even the European Union has a democratic deficit. So it does seem to me that it contained in your book is an assertion about democracy, the broad moral and ethical terms with which I disagree, but I just think it needs a little bit of fleshing out or put some, put some input. It needs more, more problematizing, to use that appalling word. The third and last question I'd raise then, David, towards Daniela's death. Um, Daniel, you have fantastic optimism about international organizations and you want to create some new ones that's great um, perhaps more so now than ever we need that and I, I agree with David on this issue you know. at this moment of global economic crisis the one thing we need is, is the institutions of global governance to actually manage this otherwise we are going to return to something dangerous and horrible it's not going to be a rerun of the 30s but the dangers are there 
And this crisis, as I said earlier on, is going to go on for a long time. And it's going to bring out some pretty vile and unpleasant attitudes around the world. But I suppose, while not disagreeing with that general argument about reform of international institutions with which I solidarize, or indeed the need for better international organizations, particularly the UN and many others, I suppose I ask the question, is that the only thing we need to do now? Is that the only thing we need to do now, simply to argue the case for reformed political organizations, greater global governance, without specifying what the policies are going to be? It seems to me, is, in a sense, a very superstructural kind of argument, in a sense, kind of using kind of old Marxist language, you know, we need to start at the base. Uh, I suppose what I'm really arguing here that yours is a very political book, and I wish it had had a bit more political economy. Now, you wrote this book, I think, clearly before <coughs> what the Queen would call the new Annus Horribilis, um, but I think the book needs more to develop those kinds of arguments. Whilst we can all agree with you in your optimism, and as I say, you're the only thing that cheers me up, along with, with Barack Obama at the moment, I do wish that you had given some more economic thought to some of those arguments, because when we come down to it, simply getting better organizations, more more people, more states on the, on the, on the G7, make the G7, G108, uh, whatever, um, it doesn't seem to me it's going to address those fundamental questions, the kinds of policies we're going to need to get us through the disastrous period in which I think we are now entering. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Well, for a dash of humor and criticism, that was excellent. Thank you, Mick, very much. There are three challenges there to the first speaker concerning the role of the United States, the question of the democratic model as the best model for producing welfare and welfare development, let's say, as opposed to the Beijing model, and questions about international organizations uh, separated from questions of economic policy and uh, other policies of more detail. I think we'll just hold those for a moment, because we'll give Danny an opportunity at the very end, I think, to respond to some of these larger questions. And I think, since we've had us, as it were, or the speakers speaking to you, I think it's only right that we create the opportunity now for you to pursue issues and raise questions. Um, we'll take them in clusters of four or five, <coughs> so there's plenty of opportunity, not enough, of course, to for you. So if I could see your hands raised, there are mics various places. Where are the mics down here? Okay, the lady up there. Perhaps you could just briefly say who you are, and we want short questions, not statements. We've had enough statements already. My name is Dörte Rosenau, and I'm a, a PhD student in IR at King's College. And I have a question to um, Danielle and to George Mommio. Um, the question is, the underlying assumption of cosmopolitanism seems to be, if only the people truly ruled, the world would be so much better. And the question is, what is it's the all-communitarian argument, basically, what <coughs> bond is there, or can there be, between all the people of the world to really create this community that you wish um, that you wish for, because if I just give one example, the, um, British the British involvement in the EU, why should it be in the British, I don't think that most British people would agree that the EU would become more democratic if that meant that, um, that uh, decisions could be made against um, presumably British interests. So the thing is, there is no such thing as a world community, that would, I would argue. Thank you. Yes, there was a question down here. Someone raised their hand at the back here. Uh, yes. 
Yes, good evening. Uh, I'm Rula Palo from Berber College, PhD student. Uh, I have a question for Daniel uh, about his uh, values of democracy. Um, I was wondering, are those values conditions, preconditions, hypotheses, or findings, findings in your book? And also, uh, how do you actually conceptualize theoretically these values? What is your uh, theoretical framework or the broader theoretical framework based on the political framework that you were discussing or political economic framework that you rely upon in order to produce these values of democracy. This is question number one. I've got a few more questions, but uh, I should have That's liked enough. to give a chance to some more people to talk. Good idea. Thank you for the self-restraint. Yes, gentleman over here. You can answer that one. Mo uh, an Iranian educated and trained by the Brits, worked most of his career for Americans. Uh, a low-level question and a high-level. The high-level, if within EU the countries can decide between the 25 or whatever it is, and with Slovenia not just getting to the top of it, uh, why on the UN level the same can't be hold? It so happens the five have the bomb, but in principle, what does it take to actually, in UN, the decisions to be made by the majority? That's the high-level question. So far as democracy goes, BBC's decision for refusing to actually broadcast an appeal by a third-party organization, how democratic is that? Thank you. Yes, lady up the top. Um, I'm Abby Innes, and I teach political economy in the European Institute. Um, I'm, I'm hoping to persuade George Monbiot to be optimistic. I don't know if that's possible. Um, I'm wondering if... Uh, the current financial crisis should give us some cause for optimism in the sense that doesn't it mean a partial, at least, collapse of the kind of dogmatic economic liberalism that we've seen? And it's that economic liberalism that's really constrained party political strategies. And it's also uh, a dogmatism that in many places has discredited political liberalism because it seems to have been bought at such a high price, particularly in, you know, in places like Central Europe, for example. So I'm wondering if the current crisis holds the potential for the reopening of genuine political choices because it reopens the economic arena as the main area of political contestation. And in the 20th century, it was the economic arena that allowed the development of post-war democracies <coughs> because it's an area where you can negotiate. So I'm wondering if you can be optimistic you, about that. Thank you for your very clear question. Let's just take one more before we... Yeah, no, you've had... A, no, 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 no. We're not going back to the same speaker. Is there anyone down here? With a yes, gentlemen, the back. Hello, I'm Daniel's colleague uh, Suhi Lee from Birkbeck. I have a very small question, specific one. Um, what do you think about the expansion and deepening of the internet and, and the digital world? How does that aid in any specific, specific ways uh, the fulfillment of your global democracy? Okay, that's five questions. Um, I think that we'll perhaps you would just take one or two each, or uh, I'm keen that nobody's question drops away, but we want to have further rounds of questions. So if you could just be sharp and to the point with indicative answers more than full answers because there isn't time. So should we start with you, George, to pick up one of the questions okay. directed to you? Thanks, yes. Um, I'd like to address that one and also the first question, if I may. Um, yes, I, 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 I do believe that you're right. The question is, where is the mobilization going to come from, which then pushes for these new economic and therefore political policies? And what we have lost, among many other things over the past 20 years, is our base. 
we're very good as campaigners of any variety at mobilizing for instant events, um, at uh, creating a presence on the streets, at making a lot of noise, and then we all go home again and forget about it. And we, we, we've, we've lost the base, whether it's the trades unions, whether it's the religious-based organizations, uh, whether it's, it's um, the broad social democratic organizations, they have gone by and large. And, um, and somehow we have to recreate that because without it, nothing can change. We, we, uh, one of the very striking things which differentiates this financial crisis from similar ones in the past is, is, is that there is not a movement waiting in the wings with an alternative agenda to sweep in and say this is what needs to be done. And that's partly because the striking alternative agenda which was there before has collapsed and, and proven not to work. But, but we, we have not used the past 20 years to develop a different one. And, um, and the question, uh, and perhaps this is a question we can throw out, is is that because there isn't a clearly formulated different agenda out there, or is it simply that we have not built up the base and, uh, um, and the praxis which is required to, 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 make, to, to, to make that into a coherent alternative economic and political program and then to push for it. On, on the first question, uh, and it's another interesting question, uh, what creates a global community? Well, in a way, it's an awfully lot, uh, it's a great deal easier to answer that question at the global level than at the European level because the community of humankind is pre-established by the fact that we all belong to the same species. We, the boundaries are pre-established in that they are the boundaries of the planet. We don't need flags and national anthems and patriotic songs to establish the fact that we belong to this planet rather than to another one. Uh, the, European, the European Union, by contrast, is, is this very weird construct where the people of Portugal have to um, see themselves as belonging to the same community as the people of Romania, but not the same community as the people of Switzerland. And it is a very odd odd shape to this, to, to this community, and it's one which we um, have had to, 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 to be drawn into <coughs> by all sorts of means, fair and foul, and in fact most of us haven't really been drawn in in any great emotional way. But the fact that we're all human beings, the fact that we're all in this basket together, and the fact that this uh, basket is going to hell in a handbasket is, um, is, is, is something which sh can be used to draw us together very clearly. And when we're faced with issues like the financial crisis, like climate change, like uh, many of the other things which can only be tackled at the global level, it's not hard to make the case that this is something uh, which should pull us together in order to fight our common problems together. Danieli. <coughs> Shall I also respond to, 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 to Mick? Well, no, I mean, uh, no, I'd no. like to leave, come back to that to the very end. Actually, to the very end. Because there are three very fundamental questions. Yeah. And I, I think just respond to the audience first and we'll yes, tie okay. it up at the so end. Yes, OK. So I will be very brief. You know, I mean, in terms of the... I think uh, these are the principles of the... What I've described here, as I see here, they are the basic principles of democracy, which pu put together all uh, the forms of democracy which we so far know. And all these principles can be applied in different ways, eh? and can also be expanded in a variety of ways. And therefore, I think uh, that uh, the vitality of democracy, which leads to some optimism, uh, is that we can still enlarge our understanding of democracy. So I'm not uh, optimistic uh, for what democracy is, but for what democracy can be. And I mean, to repeat what uh, your prime minister, not the current one, but the old one, once said, I don't really know any other better option to that, you know? And, uh, 
And uh, um, uh, so he also mentioned the issue about <coughs> internet. Yes, I think that the issue of global democracy somehow very much, everything is influenced from internet, including global democracy. I mean, can you imagine how China, for example, is having troubles to keep political control or to manipulate information in a situation in which all its citizens need, have access, not all, but I mean a large number of Chinese have got access to internet and can consult different sources of information or even to be individually in touch with the peoples. I think uh, that to keep control over people is becoming more difficult than it used to be during, for example, the period of the Cold War. Even at the time of the Cold War, uh, somehow the people in the East uh, were somehow influenced by other forms. And I think uh, I will leave uh, the other questions uh, to, to Bri that. Briefly, do you want to reflect on the answers to the questions? I, I just wanted to attack the BBC. Um, um, weirdest decision I think they've made, even in their weird and long and wonderful wonderful history. I mean, but it, you know, I mean, that's, that's all I really want to say. I mean, I wanted to pick up on one of the points that, that, that George made really about, you know, what new social forces. Um, I, I'm kind of old enough and kind of old lefty enough to think that uh, we are going to return because I don't think we can have any alternative but to return to the politics of class. Uh, I think this is going to force, uh, it's, it's not going to be a choice. I think that the abandonment of class language, the new labor, if they, if they ever use the word class, they kind of gag. Um, <coughs> social structure, structural constraints. But uh, the one thing this global crisis will bring out, it seems to me, is going to be a return of some class politics. And now, whether that's going to be good or bad, I think it's going to be very good because we get back to the, the politics of distribution and redistribution. But that's what we've been living without and thinking we could do without for the last few years. Uh, New Labour, of course, has expressed that very well and very effectively. But I think this is why they are also caught with no clothes on, uh, because that the politics which is going to come on, not just to Britain, but around the world, I think is simply going to bypass them. Thank you. Let's take another few questions. Yeah, gentleman at the front here, and then we'll talk. Yeah, coming to you. Yes, uh, Aris Randilis uh, from the LSE. Uh, I'm, wonder, I'm wondering whether the, the return of the state uh, as a response to the current crisis is an opportunity or a threat to democracy. Because uh, we know that uh, when the state is uh, very dominant in the economy, the state-administered capitalism breeds political hegemony. Professor Cox mentioned the, the examples of, of China and Russia, and we know that the political and the economic uh, realm are intertwined. And at the same time, uh, internationally, the return of the state, as in protectionism, may draw new boundaries that breed, that will breed, may likely breed more conflict. So, do you see it as an opportunity, or do you see it? And next year. Okay, Mary Caldor, LSE. Um, my question's really to Daniele and to George Monbiot, because of course I'm in favour. I'm in favour of a world parliament and I'm in favor of democratizing global organizations. But I really wonder if that's the way you're going to achieve political equality and people's voices. And I wonder whether it doesn't presuppose a very old-fashioned, top-down view of democracy, that actually globalization isn't just about interdependence. It's about a new kind of individualism. It's about people acting in new ways. Yes, the old-fashioned base is eroded, but there are all kinds of new forms of activism, like political consumerism, like internet activism, 
that changes the mood. And a lot of decisions do get changed, not through the traditional mechanisms, but through a change of mood that affects the world, that affects, um, that affects different countries. You can't any longer expect to change things by voting. You have to be able to influence people in other countries. And finally, related to that, the significant, and this is actually perhaps to me, the significance of Obama seems to me precisely the new type of movement he created. I think what it, he, he may well not do what we hope for, but actually the implications of all those people being involved in politics will have enormous implications for the future of the United States. Hello, I'm from the LAC, from the government department. Uh, my question is, uh, those behind you are the values of democracy, so the values that should underpin democracy, but what makes democracy a value in itself? Uh, I think those are quite nice, as well as a loose definition, nonviolence, public control, pop political equality, but I think uh, there are many other, many other systems of arranging life, and I, I'm not sure uh, about about the value of democracy in itself, especially because democracy has been over the years and many, many things. And we look uh, forward democracy as something to, to be established, but there are many, many horrible things made and done in the name of democracy. So I, I do not share this enthusiasm towards democracy. And what it, why is it value in okay. itself? Great, good question. A gentleman behind you. Behind, 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 behind. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, I'm studying at the LSE as well, and uh, first of all, I, I'm German-Iranian, so I'd like to um, question one of the statements that Dr. Cox make, uh, <coughs> made earlier. Uh, if you can really call a um, country in which 90% of the potential candidates for a parliamentary election, election are excluded from the elections, uh, I'm not sure where you derived uh, how you derived that this <coughs> country could be called uh, fully democratic. Um, my questions uh, refer to the two big issues, I think, of uh, tonight's debate. Uh, first of all, Barack Obama, and second of all, um, uh, World Parliament. And uh, I would like to know how concretely you think that um, a, a person that is elected to be the uh, political leader of a nation um, could contribute to a world system in which uh, the nation he is representing effectively loses power uh, in a world parliament which should be based on political equality and uh, equal representation of the people in the world. Thanks. There are many of you who want to ask uh, questions. And I, any of you, my selection, I'm afraid, is pretty arbitrary. Um, uh, I wish there was a system uh, 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 to ensure fairness at this level, but it's very difficult. I'll just take one more question, then we'll see if we have time later to come back. Heidi Barnes, Institute of Ophthalmology, 30 years as a biomedical scientist. Um, the West's idea of democracy seems to be capitalism and basically that's about beggar my neighbour. What people, most people want, what ordinary people want is beggar my neighbour. They want to be richer than the people next door and they want their country to be richer than the country next door. How is this going to help the environment in the future? If we have more democratisation, we're going to have more waste and more consumerism. China is becoming more democratic and that is widely regarded as being a terminal problem for the environment in the future. So why is democracy an improvement? 
Okay, I'll just take one question from the gentleman at the front here with a tie on. Yes, another tie wearer. And uh, as the last question of this round. Um, thank you very much. Um, I want to be a bit provocative. I wanted to answer... Um, George Monbiot said, "Is there a it, there isn't a movement with an alternative agenda?" I'd like to say that um, there is, and uh, indeed, both you and David have kindly signed up to it um, for a UN parliamentary assembly. And uh, that campaign has snowballed over the last three years. We have 600 parliamentarians signed up around the world for, parla for parliamentarians to join in and set one up. And uh, the, the UK is, is the th third strongest country of support after Canada and Germany and um, I'd like to be provocative and say what can the LSE do to help persuade our government to sign up to that um, please we already have <laughs> many questions on the table I'm afraid one thing you have to know is while I mean many of us would be happy to go on till midnight the staff here are not and in order to ensure our good reception at future events we have to ensure that those who are only paid to a certain period can go home that is the underlying reason for events having to close for no other reason. Um, I'd like to give um, uh, Mick an opportunity first to respond to one or two items that might come to you, then George, and then perhaps Daniele will wrap up and address Mick's big questions as well as the outstanding questions. And if there's time, we'll perhaps raise one or two other issues. But why don't we start with you, Mick? Uh, I'll be very, very quick. I mean, I point quickly an empirical point about Iran yeah I mean I know exactly what you're saying I actually, that's why I threw in the word quasi-democratic I mean but there are some democratic forms that's all I was kind of pointing towards I mean I understand perfectly well the, 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 the absence and the limitations so I wasn't being naive I'm simply suggesting that what I think I was more generally suggesting that uh, you know even even quasi-democracies or you know mobilizing democracies or nationalist democracies can sometimes do some pretty horrible things. That's what I was trying to say. Um, I mean, Israel is, you know, whichever way you cut it, I mean, internally in terms of Israel is broadly speaking a democracy. Um, but still does some pretty appalling things. Um, 1990s in former Yugoslavia, I mean, Milosevic got some form of democratic mandate and did some pretty atrocious things. The only thing I was really trying to make the more general point, and I'm sorry about the clarification on Iran was simply to make that point. Um, the, the Barack Obama point I, I really did want to stress, not out of any false naivete about what Barack can do or about, about the constraints upon him and indeed upon the United States more generally. Um, but, but I pick up on Mary's point that I, I think we can sometimes be too cynical about the, Ameri about the United States. There's been a lot of anti-Americanism. And it's very cynical, too, about the political process. And you could be pretty cynical about the, the way Barack even got elected. After all, he spent $635 million getting elected. You know, it was a rich man's election. He actually spent, which I actually find really great, actually, spent, spent twice as much as the Republicans, which cheers me up no end. Um, <laughs> you know, you could make all sorts of comments about, 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 about that election and, and all, all the nonsense that went with it. But I have to say, uh, I'm, I'm surprised myself, uh, I was quite inspired by it. And, um, and not just because it was the first African-American, although I think that is a huge sim symbolic power around the world. <coughs> huge. I mean, we, I don't think we've even fully grasped the implications of that, not just in terms of American terms, but the message it sends, not just into sub-Saharan Africa, but around the world. The confusion it's created amongst jihadists around the world. You know, this is a, an extraordinary moment. And I'm simply trying to say that we without any kind of you know, rose-tinted glasses about Barack and, 
and, and the limits of what he's going to be able to do, particularly on the Middle East, where the Israel <coughs> lobby is so powerful in the United States. I think we have to pick up on that. The other thing I'd simply say also about Barack Obama's election, I don't think it was just an American election. Um, you know, the interest shown in that election, the hope which many people around the world invested in that election, uh, rightly or wrongly, in Europe and in large parts of the world, in, somebody said that if, he, if he'd stood for election in Nigeria, he would have got 94% of the vote. Um, and he probably would have got more than that in Kenya. Um, but I think it was a world election. And I think, therefore, within that, there, there, there is at least some ray of hope. That's what I was trying to get, to get out. And I, you know, already people are kind of writing him off, writing him down. And I still think that this, therefore, presents some possibilities. And it tells us, finally, quite a lot about the United States, which we lost sight of during the last eight bleak and black years. And you know, from that point of view, you know, I say, right on. I'm with you, Barack, as far as you can take us. The, the questions have been so good this evening that it's been really hard to choose between them in, um, in trying to decide which ones to answer. But I, I'm going to c come back to Mary because I, I think the point she made was a very interesting one. And, um, she says, well, look, there's a change of mood. There's a new individualism. It doesn't all have to be brokered through these formal top-down institutions. True. But it has to be brokered to the formal top-down institutions. Yes, Barack Obama mobilized this fantastic internet campaign and everything, but for what? The purpose of the campaign was to elect a new president of the United States. Some, there had to be a product. There had to be something coming out at the end of it. And I've been around informal campaigning for far too long not to see that it has its limits. I mean, that's what I've always done is informal campaigning. But you need a base, and you need to be campaigning towards something. And just sitting at home and scribbling things on websites doesn't change anything unless you're actually mobilizing towards political structures which can change things. And this arena is necessary for the influence which you talk about to count. And at the global level, we can all bellyache to our heart's content. We saw what happened in Seattle in 1999, for instance. It didn't do anything. It didn't change anything because the arena was not there. And, and there was no one to pick up that call on the inside and say, the people have spoken. We must respond to the people. The people spoke, and everybody said, ah, oh, they're just a load of scuzzy, scuzzy dropout, Molotov cocktail bomb, Molotov cocktail throwing, throwing hippies. And, 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 you know, and, and the, the sheer supercilious disdain with which we were treated by the people within the fence who called us undemocratic, believe it or not, staggeringly, and would not take up those calls because the mechanisms for taking up the call did not exist. So you have to have both. The, the participation does not count without representation as well. The representation is illegitimate without participation. You have to bring the two things together. The question about the environment, which is a very interesting and dangerous question, you ask. Does, does democratization lead to the destruction of the biosphere, without which nothing is there? Well, yes, but basically the answer is humans lead to the destruction of the biosphere, whatever their system. We saw what happened in the undemocratic systems of the Eastern Bloc under, under communism, which mm. were incredibly destructive environmentally. I mean, they, uh, uh, considering that their resources were more limited than those of today, it was amazing what they managed to achieve <laughs> in terms of seriously buggering up the biosphere. Um, climate change, uh, man-made climate change, kicked off big time about 5,000 years ago when Neolithic people started clearing the forests. And there was a very clear carbon pulse 
into the atmosphere, which caused very significant um, global changes as, as, uh, as a result of that clearance. Um, uh, you know, we are the problem, we are also the solution. And unless we are allowed to mobilize to create that solution, we just remain the problem. And within a democratic system, what you require is advocacy. And in this case, advocacy on behalf of the environment, advocacy on behalf of people weaker and poorer than yourself, advocacy on behalf of the unborn. It will always be a struggle. But without that opportunity for advocacy, there will only be destruction. There cannot possibly be a solution. Thank you. So, Daniele, do you want to start with that sort of mix yes. overarching questions yes. to begin with and then work out to the audience? Yes, I've got five minutes only, and that's already five minutes too many. So I will try to be uh, as short as possible. I mean, some of you may have noted uh, that uh, I'm Italian. And uh, <laughs> I, I come from Rome. And uh, as many of you, I think, have been in Rome, you should know that Rome in, the, in the June is a very hot city. The hottest uh, June we had in Rome uh, was uh, in 1944. The photo, the photo June, when uh, the Nazis and the fascists uh, were leaving the city, going to the north, uh, and killing uh, people on the street, prisoners, Jewish, uh, partisans, some of them were killed in the street. And actually, in the very place where I live now, next to Porta Maggiore, it was the place uh, where the Allied were coming. But I mean, everybody was afraid. All, uh, all the blind were shut. Nobody was in the streets. It was very dangerous to be there. And then, suddenly, the miracle arrived. There were the American soldiers from uh, Via Prenestina <coughs> and the English soldiers uh, from uh, Via Appia. And uh, everybody opened uh, the shutters. Everybody started to greet them. And uh, the American soldiers, uh, the first people who saw them, uh, were black, black soldiers. They were singing jazz songs when jazz was forbidden during the fascism. I mean, you could, be, you could be arrested to listen jazz music in Italy. And they were also doing something bad at the time. They were also distributing cigarettes, but at the time they were not. Uh, so when Mick said that I'm, not, uh, that I'm an anti-American, uh, or that I, I got uh, a very harsh view about America, that's true. But because uh, I'm still stick uh, to the American promise and the American dream, uh, which uh, we Italians experienced uh, in 1944. And not only Italy, also all the parts of the world, of course, all Europe and all the, all the parts of the world. And I think uh, that American democracy should stick to these promises. And when uh, the American democracy went <coughs> away from these promises, uh, from this American dream offered to the world, as it did in Vietnam, should be the, uh, or as it did in Iraq, uh, it should be announced, and we should go back uh, to the original spirit uh, of the American democracy. I, I, th I say in the book, uh, among many other things, uh, mm -hmm. that uh, international organizations, including the League of Nations, including the United Nations, uh, are somehow the products of two important American presidents. Mm -hmm. And we need to go back to this uh, American, American spirit. Mm -hmm. So uh, am, I, am I too optimistic about democracy? Uh, possibly I am. But uh, I mean, I think, uh, I mean, among the many things uh, I share with, with David, uh, is also the idea that uh, democracy should not be conceived uh, as uh, a full monthly. Either you get all of it or nothing, you know? I mean, democracy is a process, uh, and we need to struggle about democracy. My, 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 fr my friend, and, I mean, because I've read quite a lot of his stuff, uh, George Monbiot has been in the last days uh, at Heathrow Airport uh, complaining because on one specific decision, democracy was not fully respected, and we can do it. And even in my own country, which uh, Mick Cox uh, has uh, 
kindly reminded me that it's not the most, uh, at the moment, uh, maybe it's not the most democratic country of the world, but even in my own country and in quite a lot of countries, uh, democracy has precisely the sort of checks and balances uh, which might help uh, to go on the right turn and even to progress. Mm -hmm. And indeed, democracy, if democracy doesn't progress, of course, uh, is a dead political system. And precisely the controversies and the critical actions that quite a lot of us do in order to keep democracy moving is precisely what allow us to go on, to, to go on, to, to go on with democracy. And let me say that I perfectly agree on the, not agree, I perfectly understand the view that maybe democracy is not the best system. I would like to know what's alternative and uh, I mean, uh, uh, since Plato, we have been discussing this issue. We can continue to discuss this issue forever. That's fine. But <laughs> my important point uh, is that if today you share democratic beliefs, uh, in that case, you cannot uh, think that democracy should be at the national level only, because it's impossible. And the idea that you should create uh, some boundaries uh, in order to protect uh, a democratic community and not enter into relation with the others is simply impossible to realize uh, and is contradicting democracy. And therefore, I would argue that if you, <coughs> if those of us uh, who are partisans of democracy should also be partisans of global democracy. Last issue about Obama, I didn't want to be harsh about Obama, and if I am, it's because it has generated too much enthusiasm within my family. I never <laughs> seen my family so happy as when I um, took back uh, from, uh, from the United States some Obama T-shirts last August, uh, and therefore this make, make, made me a bit, you know, a bit nervous. I felt a bit threatened, uh, even in my, in my personal household by, by Barack Obama, but I'm not, I'm not I mean, besides, besides that, uh, I, I really appreciate uh, that uh, Barack Obama has created uh, enthusiasm and so on. My point is another one. Don't, uh, we shouldn't leave Barack Obama alone. And uh, this uh, is, uh, my appeal is an appeal that, I mean, uh, if there's anything to do, it's not uh, a one-man job. Well, so much more could uh, be said on the platform and, of course, by you, uh, everyone here this evening. I really wish it was possible for us to go for several hours longer. You can see that the speakers have it in them to go for several hours longer. The Italian one especially has been known to go all night. Um, but it just but it remains for me, it remains for me not just to thank the speakers for their uh, arguments and their differences, but also their sense of humor, which have made this evening you know, a very memorable and excellent occasion. So guys, thank you very, very much. You're most appreciated.